Our first reading is from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It is always fun for me to be here. Um, I confess this week is a touch less fun, A, because Johnny's not here, but B, because to be given the topic, are Christians too political? That's the question you're looking at this morning. In light of recent events in our nation's history, feels a bit like a bait and switch from Johnny. Thanks for being out of town. I could have done hypocrisy, evangelism, sexuality. No, I get this one. So thank you, Johnny, wherever you are this morning. You are in a series uh, on two books. One of the things Johnny is really good at is helping you think about how does what you talk about on Sunday morning engage in all your life. Like all the world, all of life is Jesus' life. And so you are in a summer series this summer on two books, one called uh, Unchristian by some guys named Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons that we'll be looking at this morning. And the second you'll pick up in a couple weeks with a book by Tim Keller called Reason for God. You probably noticed... As you came in, there are different opportunities for you to pick up a copy of Reasons for God on your way out. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't read that book by Tim Keller, please grab it and do it. It's a great book. The last two weeks 
in your series on unchristian, I'm here with you both weeks. So this week is political and next week is judgmental. So sorry about that. <laughs> um, but I, I want to start this morning. Um, again, we're addressing this question. Are Christians too involved with politics? Um, if you're reading along in the book on Christian, you'll see that's the question they framed, the Barna Group and Dave Kinneman, who's the president of that group, with lots of people to see what they thought of Christians and how they responded to that question. And the implication was people felt like, yes, they are. Now, this is a book published in 2007, and the polls were probably done 2004, 5, 6. So that's almost 10 years ago. There's a lot of water that's gone under the bridge even now since then. So I want to start with just a brief quiz. And the, the beauty is, no matter how well I do this week, if it goes poorly, I can say to Johnny, well, I had some really great slides that I couldn't put up because your stuff was broken. So I, I feel really free in the whole experience. So this is a true and false quiz. Um, just answer in your head, and when we come back, we'll, answer, we'll do it twice. We'll do it at the beginning and the end of the service. Okay, so true or false? As Christians, we are representatives of Ronald Reagan to every person in our culture, regardless of whether we agree politically. True or false? As Christians, we are representatives of John F. Kennedy to every person in our culture, regardless of whether we agree politically. True or false, we are representatives of George Washington to every person in our culture, regardless of whether we agree politically. Don't worry, I'm not going through every president we have. That's the last one. True or false, as a Christian, you can be too involved in politics. Or true or false, true or false, as a Christian, you can be too uninvolved in politics. If you have a Bible and want to turn to one of our passages this morning, that'd be great. We read from Matthew 22 and Psalm 84. I'd encourage you to, to go to Psalm 84. We'll spend a little more time there this morning. Let's use these passages then as a broader frame for the conversation we're having about politics and Christianity. Again, we live in Northern Virginia, and most people probably, if you go somewhere and meet people, they say, where do you live? You probably say, in D.C. So obviously this question frames a lot of how many of us live. For Matthew 22, this very familiar passage about Jesus and taxes and, and people coming and asking him, this guy's going to save the world. Why are we asking him about taxes, right? Jesus lived in a very political society where the civil authorities were omnipresent and there were more than one. And they saw Jesus as a threat. The civil authorities saw Jesus as a threat. And he was faced with decisions. People weren't just asking him questions that were spiritual heaven kind of questions. What do I do about my hatred and my anger and my lust? They were giving him questions that explicitly and implicitly carried political connotations. The way he was going to answer would trigger guy wires for certain groups. Like this set of questions here about taxes in the temple. In that set of questions, Jesus could step on a landmine with any of a number of different parties because the question's about money and Caesar and whose side is Jesus on? Here in this question, explicitly or implicitly represented are the Romans, who are everywhere in Israel, the Sadducees, who partner with Rome to rule Israel, and particularly are over the temple and temple taxes, the Pharisees, who love the Torah but are legalists and are arraigned very often against the Sadducees, 
And then the zealots, right, who go around advocating for political overthrow of Rome. One of Jesus' very disciples was a zealot. So you can picture even the 12 are listening to Jesus with bated breath. And in Jesus' answer, he's not on any of their sides. He was on his father's side and God's side. So he gives an answer that pleased none of them and ticked off all of them. Pleased none and angered all. But his answer gave a framework for the young church. Live among the pagans. Live among the pagans. Honor and even pray for the rulers. Despite how you were treated. These groups expected Jesus to be a political revolutionary, to bring a political kingdom. That was the expectation. That is why so often the Pharisees, the Sadducees, don't know what Jesus, don't get Jesus, because he's not making sense to what they assumed was going to happen when the Messiah came. He doesn't bring a political kingdom. He brings the kingdom of heaven in all its power and glory, infinite and finite, not just finitely political, but globally, forever, infinitely a new kingdom. And this kingdom of heaven absolutely was and is concerned about things that are concerned about if you're concerned about politics, the created world and justice and righteousness and law and love and families and roads. This kingdom has long been served by people in politics. If you want to go home today, read Romans 16, and you'll see one of the exhortations at the end of Romans to greet someone is a man named Erastus, who's the city treasurer of Rome. So just a few decades later, they're actually political city officials being greeted by the Apostle Paul in Rome. So clearly politics was filtering around the early church. If you were part of the church in Rome and were friends with Erastus, you might be tempted on a given Sunday as they gathered for worship like we do to say, hey, you know, that, that road tax is a little high, Erastus. Can we bring that down a little bit? But the kingdom of heaven is not part of any of those political parties, nor has it continued to be a political party. As much as it is a reflection, emissary, and ambassador of heaven's intent. The kingdom of heaven is a reflection, emissary, and ambassador of heaven's intent. That is what you are and what I am to be. So when a political party of any persuasion is advocating for heaven's intent, we cheer and we help and we support and we roll up our sleeves, as Ryan, Corky, and I all have done this morning symbolically to show you just what that means. And we wade in to our communities. But when a political party is not doing this, we don't cheer and we don't support and we figure out ways to continue to bring heaven. As heaven's citizens, you and I are still tasked with the cultural mandate of Genesis 2 to go and love and steward and make sense of the world. Bring culture. Many of you have probably read a book called Culture Making by Andy Crouch. That book is all about amplifying that idea. We're supposed to make disciples, we're supposed to make culture and pursue the common good in any and all creative ways that we can think of with our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. So that's a frame from Matthew 22 as we think about this question.
What about Psalm 84? Psalm 84 is a psalm written uniquely by this group called the Sons of Korah. It's not written by David. It's just a small subset of psalms written by these men. And they were literally, initially, the doorkeepers of the temple in Israel. So verse 10, when the writer says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of heaven, he literally is a doorkeeper. He's telling you, I would rather be this than pursue evil. And it's a fairly important job to guard and wade in, let people in who have longing to the temple, but it's a bit of a minor job initially. But these men through the centuries so faithfully do it that by the time of David, they are the primary music directors, choral worship directors of Israel, and they're composing psalms. And this humble profession composes this very humble psalm of longing. And I think in many ways you could say all politics is rooted in longing. Good longings, legislation or rulers who care for the poor and needy, who help people thrive with a business to be able to provide for their families and communities, who provide civil and sometimes military protection. And of course, there are bad longings that can be good and foul or be fouled. Even corruption in a political system is fueled by a longing. It can be a longing for yourself and getting what you want, but it's still fueled by a longing. Noble or ignoble, moral or immoral. St. Augustine said, if you want to understand someone, then understand their longings. And when we are faced with questions that are political in our culture, it would be good for us to ask, what is the longing underneath this particular political issue? The longing here in Psalm 84 is for the courts of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. My soul longs and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. These are people who have seen people come through the gates in need, come burdened with, in need of worshiping God and leave unburdened for centuries. They know what it's like to come be in the temple of the Lord. And they are not ab absent from it. They're actually in it. That's their job. So it's saying, like saying, I'm eating at my favorite restaurant and it's so great that my body and flesh and heart want to keep eating at my favorite restaurant. These are people being met by God and seeing what God is doing as people come in burdened and leave free. And this temple is the place where intimacy with God is to be found. It's a place where the ultimate political authority is God on the throne. And we are submitted to him and his authority. So when you come and you have your longings met with God, you still have to exit the doors. And then what? Do we only know God? Do we only know peace? Do we only know our purpose in the temple? What about when we're out in these political situations? Some of you might say, well, I don't really like politics, but I bet almost everybody here has used this phrase. Well, work or school or our bus stop or our family is just so political. It's just so hard because it's so political. We're not gonna raise our hands, but I'd be stunned if all of us haven't used that phrase in some way, shape, or form. When we go out the door of the temple, then what? And that's why this phrase in verse five is so important. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. The New International Version of that verse says, blessed are you 
Blessed are those who set their hearts on pilgrimage, who conclusively set their hearts on the temple. That guides and directs their life. So when I'm sent out to the highways of Zion or Vienna or 66 or the Beltway, I'm sent to live as one who trusts in God, the God of the temple. I'm not just blessed. You can see you're blessed twice in this psalm. Blessed are those in the temple and blessed are those on the highways. And as you gather here now and then you get sent back out on the highways into political situations, how do we do that? How do we keep our allegiance to God? How do we live as heaven citizens? Frankly, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel like perhaps heaven's voice is ignored. Or increasingly, it can feel like heaven's voice is the enemy. As our culture seems to be moving from somewhat Christian to postmodern to post-Christian to anti-Christian. And in that place, as pilgrims, then what do we do? There's a couple different temptations. You know, the, the Greek political philosophers, they had lots of different schools of thought on politics. But a couple of the schools are temptations. One is the, the school of Stoicism. It's Greek philosophy birthed in Athens where virtue is based on knowledge. And if you want to be wise, you live in harmony with that knowledge. But you're indifferent to what one writer says, the, to the vicissitudes of fortune, pleasure, and pain. Indifferent to fortune, pleasure, and pain. Now, in one way, you can see how that could be valuable as a per- individually. Well, I just don't respond to things. I don't get high or low. But what about if you see pain in someone else? What if you see pain in Vienna? Is stoicism the answer? Is that living with heaven's intent? to withdraw, keep our head down, be a Christian devotee to Jesus and to heaven, but not to doing any earthly good, to be uninvolved in politics. Another temptation is a school of cynicism, another great Greek philosophy. And then the cynicism, you develop a sneering disbelief, a sneering disbelief in sincerity or integrity. Nobody's sincere and nobody has integrity. And you distrust and dislike human beings and their society. Notice again the objectification. It's your society. I'm okay. It's not ours. Now here in D.C., cynicism is especially toxic and tempting. Because many, many, many of us come here because we believe this is a place where you can change the world. And then you find out, A, that no one's lining up to ask you what, you want, what your thoughts are to do that. And then, too, boy, some people here really just are, their longings are about themselves, and then the dominoes start to fall, and you can land in cynicism very quickly. And in an information age where we are swamped with promises and marketing and just the overflow of information, cynicism almost becomes a required protective measure to survive, a default position. But if we're the church, if we're with Jesus in the temple, the same temple, the doorkeepers watched, by the way, the same area, 
had been torn down and rebuilt, but the same area of Israel where God met with his people. You have doorkeepers and Jesus. If we're with Jesus and we're asking him, what do we do? If we're to be pilgrims like the sons of Korah, blessed doorkeepers to the house of God because of grace, paying our taxes, what now? Is stoicism or cynicism the only option available to us? I would argue no, that heaven's intent for you and for me is a third way, which is J.R.L. Tolkien's great phrase. The third way is the way of love. Not stoic, not cynic, but lover. Be a way to describe yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm this and I'm this and this, and I'm a lover of Vienna. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's why Jesus is in the temple answering these questions. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If I'm still to live under the Caesars of the world until Jesus returns, and this is a part of my pilgrimage to God's presence living in this place, that actually part of my intimacy with God is blessed and found on the highway to Zion, which was run by political figures, then cynicism and stoicism are not marks of the kingdom of heaven. They're actually an affront. But love is a mark of the kingdom of heaven. And a longing for God that moves us to engage in politics in love is holy and honored. If you are interested in looking at what that crazy tension could look like, I'd encourage you to read Daniel 6 today, where you find Daniel, the number two ruler in a very pagan society, on his knees three times a day. Live among the pagans. I bet Daniel paid his taxes on his knees before Yahweh. So what does our love look like? What does it look like for have that kind of heaven's love? Well, it looks sacrificial. It looks like loving enemies. It looks like being first and foremost a voting member of the kingdom of heaven, not of a political party, which can take courage. Then it looks like being very, very well-read, up on the issues, able to dialogue and defend and disagree with someone without demonizing them, remembering that those who disagree with you have longings for God whether they are named or known or not that can only be met in God, and loving a country without it loving you back. The mandate as heaven's citizen is to love as Jesus loves. There's no promise that who you love will love you back. When Jesus came, there's no promise that we would respond to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And right now with the pressure and the tide against the church where it feels like we are being marginalized and in many ways just being aligned in a fresh way with our brothers and sisters around the world who are marginalized. This is not new in church history at all where heaven's kingdom is pressed outside of political power. But so often in the U.S., we're fueled not with ideas of the kingdom of heaven, but reminders that our heart's true home really finds its life in individualism. 
I encourage you to listen to the first sermon in this series that Johnny preached to get a fuller explanation of individualism. But we're called to be a community and a kingdom and a people and a family and a body. These are the metaphors we are given in the New Testament for who we're to be. So to be lovers of God in our cities, we must commit to being on pilgrimage, this line from Psalm 84. Jesus is on the throne. Our deepest longings are only met in him. He, in fact, is the incarnated temple. What we celebrate in the incarnation at Advent is that the traveling, the pilgrim journey to the temple in Israel now is made to Jesus. The word, God in the flesh, coming to be with us rather than the other way. Jesus actually pilgrims to you. So you should, that alone should blow your mind all week long. Jesus pilgrimed to you. And blessed are those who now set our hearts on pilgrimage to him. And part of that pilgrimage is faithfully walking in the cities, counties, states, and countries we live in politically. No matter the difficulty we face along the way. Pilgrimage has begun with the end in view, which is Jesus. It's begun with a resolve to make it to the end no matter what. With an understanding that this is not just going for a run or a walk around the neighborhood or a visit to the gym or a trip to the store. It's something that takes much longer, but is worth it to find our deepest human longings fulfilled. Pilgrimages cost. Pilgrimages are great for the journey, mostly for who you're journeying with, but the journey itself is not the reward. The reward is the end, and the end is Jesus on the throne. So let's return briefly to our questions. Who do we represent? We are representatives of Jesus to every person in our culture, regardless of whether we agree politically. We are representatives of Jesus. Can we be too involved in politics? Absolutely, you can be too involved in politics. When? When politics is your hope in Messiah. When you demonize those who disagree, even if and when they demonize you. When you are caught up in power and you think that your pilgrimage should be about getting power. And when you forget who's on the throne. Can we be too uninvolved in politics? Absolutely. When? Again, when we pull away and forget who's on the throne. When we forget he's on the throne of the whole world. Christ Church Vienna and Church of the Ascension is going to go through Ephesians together starting in the fall. And we're going to spend some time in Ephesians 1, which is this glowing hymn Paul writes about where Jesus is now and what he's doing. And what you see there is he is over the entire universe. And if he, our Lord and Savior, who died to love the world, is over the entire universe, how could we ever pull back from loving that world and look him in the face? When we forget Jesus died to bring in the new kingdom of heaven. And when we ignore the legacy of civil servants like Joseph and Daniel and William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore, who spent time and energy and political willpower 
to pursue heaven's intent down through the centuries on behalf of the poor and the forgotten, the needy, the immoral, people who had set their hearts on somewhere else. One of the real beauties of this church is its clear vision on where it's loving. It's a real gift. My prayer is that you would not be daunted by the world we live in, but ignited by the king who died for us. Pick up a book on church history if you're daunted and read it and watch that the kingdom that always wins, the kingdom that always wins is Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you pilgrim to us. It is a miracle. And you know we are frail, finite, and apt to faint. You've given us so many means and gifts and vocations represented here just in this room to live out what it means to be heaven's citizen in business and politics and education and medicine, on school buses, in hallways, on streets and restaurants. I so thank you for this church. And I pray that you would grant them the strength to push back the darkness in fresh ways here in Vienna to give them hearts to love, that they would be so extravagantly embraced by you that they would go and be such a unique, powerful vision of what heaven is like in the way they live. We can only do this with your strength, and so we ask you for your help. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. As a song of response and also as a song to carry with you on this pilgrimage, let's sing The Solid Rock and we'll do the uh, first verse only. And um, it's in the very back of that songbook you have. So sing along or reflect and uh, think about these words as we sing it. Sad. 